Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that explores the past one day at a time. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're taking a behind-the-scenes look at how we got to Sesame Street. We'll get a sense for how the landmark show impacted children's television. And along the way, we'll also learn a little more about the humans and Muppets who call the street home. The day was November 10th, 1969. The pioneering children's education series, Sesame Street, aired its first episode. The show debuted on National Educational Television, the network that would become the Public Broadcasting Service, or PBS, the following year. The now-beloved show was specially designed to engage children's minds and foster learning, self-esteem, social skills, and problem-solving. It accomplished that rather lofty goal by adapting the tools of commercial television, including live-action skits, puppets, animation, and musical numbers. The approach was so successful that Sesame Street has been continually broadcast since its debut, later expanding to 120 countries. In its 50-plus years on the air, the show has taught basic academic concepts to generations of young children and has won more than 100 Daytime Emmy Awards, the most of any program to date. 
Before we get to what was included in that debut episode, let's talk about how the show came to be in the first place. The initial idea was hatched at, of all places, a posh Manhattan dinner party. It was at one such gathering in 1966 that an executive from the Carnegie Foundation named Lloyd Morissette struck up a conversation with a friend and public television producer named Joan Gans Cooney. Morissette told her that his daughter loved TV so much that she had memorized all her favorite commercial jingles and even woke up early just to watch the test patterns before the broadcasting day began. For that child's sake, let's hope he was exaggerating, as that sounds like poltergeist behavior to me, or at the very least, a concussion. Still, creepy factor aside, that anecdote kicked off a lengthy conversation between Morissette and Cooney about whether or not television could be made both entertaining and educational for young children. They wondered if the same flashy techniques that got kids to memorize ads for cereal and toys could also be put to use in educational ways, like teaching the alphabet or how to count. The pair kept their conversation going for the next three years, and at the heart of it was one guiding question. What if educational content went down more like ice cream than spinach? To help answer that, Cooney wrote a paper for the Carnegie Foundation in 1967 titled The Potential Uses of Television in Preschool Education. The paper outlined the small amount of research that had been done on the subject up until then, and also included Cooney's own interviews with educators and child psychologists about what an educational program for young kids should look like. So, what kind of stuff did the experts recommend? Well, as Cooney wrote in her paper, quote, Nearly everyone I met liked the idea of a daily, hour-long program. Almost all of them wanted the letters of the alphabet and their sounds, as well as numbers, to be included. That feedback, coupled with a warm response from Carnegie, spurred Cooney and Morissette to co-found the Children's Television Workshop in 1968, which was later renamed the Sesame Workshop. But one thing Cooney's research hadn't helped with was how to convey the traditionally dry subject matter in an exciting and engaging way. For help with that, she hired a children's researcher at the University of Michigan named Edward Palmer. His insights helped give shape to the show's eventual structure. For instance, his findings showed that kids loved music, slapstick comedy, and observing animals and other children. On the flip side, they disliked unkind characters and were bored stiff by adult conversations. And while some of that might sound fairly obvious in hindsight, in the 1960s, few people had given much thought to what kids would or wouldn't respond to on television, and no one had spelled it all out so succinctly. Sesame Street was a true pioneer in that regard, and it's clear how those findings would ultimately push the producers to incorporate puppets into the show. Longtime listeners may remember from our episode on The Muppet Show that Jim Henson wasn't too keen on the idea of doing children's television. A producer and writer named John Stone had recommended Henson for the project, having worked with him a few years earlier on a Cinderella adaptation that never made it to air. But at first, Henson wasn't interested. He had already found success using his puppets in everything from national commercials to the Ed Sullivan show and even a stint on SNL, so making the switch to children's programming felt like a step down to him. Of course, he eventually changed his mind, thanks to a lot of pressure and pleading from Cooney and the rest of the CTW team. 
And it's a good thing, too. Because really, what would Sesame Street be without its colorful cast of Muppets, like Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, and Bert and Ernie, all of whom were present and accounted for in the show's debut episode. It's worth noting, though, that some of those characters did look a bit different than we're used to. Big Bird, for instance, had a much thinner face, and Oscar sported bright orange fur instead of his now-familiar green. Speaking of iconic aspects of the show, let's talk a little about the name itself. Sesame Street refers, of course, to the fictional New York street where many of the characters live and interact. But the team actually went through quite a few names before settling on the right one. Early contenders included 123 Avenue B, as well as the incredibly generic Fun Street. The former was in the running for a while, but was ultimately nixed because it was a real address in New York City, and producers worried that might limit the show's appeal. Not to mention, some kids would probably make pilgrimages to the address to find Big Bird and then be severely disappointed when they found nothing but a laundromat instead. It's lucky for everyone, then, that Virginia Schoen was on staff at the time to suggest the word sesame. She had heard it in the phrase open sesame, which appears in a Sinbad story in the Arabian Nights, and the word stuck with her as being evocative of adventures in general. That idea, joined with the show's urban setting, resulted in the title Sesame Street, which the team decided on at the last possible minute. The official premiere of Sesame Street aired on Monday, November 10th, 1969. However, the show had a soft launch two days earlier with a special preview episode called This Way to Sesame Street. It aired at 5 p.m. on NBC and was meant to introduce the concept of the show to parents so they would know when to tune in for the regular episodes. To help with that endeavor, the producers tapped an unexpected guest, the United States Commissioner of Education, James E. Allen Jr. At the end of the preview episode, he told the audience, quote, Sesame Street represents both a historic step forward by the medium of TV and an equally significant innovation in mass education. In plain words, there never has been before a nationwide TV program designed especially to prepare young children for school. Next week, there will be. So that was parents' introduction to Sesame Street. But when the show had its proper debut two days later, the first thing kids heard was this. Can You Tell Me How to Get to Sesame Street was and still is one of the best-loved aspects of the show. The upbeat yet wistful theme song was co-written by producer John Stone, songwriter Bruce Hart, and longtime Sesame Street composer Joe Raposo. Stone had wanted the song to capture a feeling he described as, quote, running happily, tumbling, playing along the way, but always intent on getting to Sesame Street. And by that criteria, I'd say the song was a huge success. Looking back years later, though, John Stone wasn't very happy with the lyrics he and his collaborators came up with. He felt they had included too many, quote, happy little cliches, and that some of the references would eventually feel dated. For example, he scoffed at the phrase, everything's A-OK, -okay, because he considered it astronaut slang. 
After exposing kids to the corrupting influence of astronauts, the rest of the Sesame Street episode plays out more or less as you'd expect. We're given a tour of the titular street and introduced to its various denizens, both human and Muppet alike. In contrast to most other kids' shows of the era, Sesame Street didn't feature a single host, and instead relied on a group of ethnically diverse presenters to keep things moving. The original human cast consisted of four actors, Matt Robinson, who played Gordon, Loretta Long, who played Gordon's wife Susan, Will Lee, who played the elderly storekeeper Mr. Hooper, and Bob McGrath, who played, well, Bob. The characters they created continued to appear on the show for decades, and some of the original actors have even returned for guest appearances in recent years. The first episode's plot, such as it is, revolves around Gordon showing a young girl named Sally, a stand-in for the audience, around Sesame Street. Interspersed with these live-action segments are various hand-drawn animations, depicting concepts like how to count to ten or which words begin with W. One of the episode's most bizarre inclusions is an extended six-and-a-half-minute sequence of live-action footage of dairy cows. The short documentary serves to illustrate how milk is produced, packaged, and brought to market, and is accompanied by a Simon and Garfunkel-inspired tune called Hey Cow. The somewhat sleepy ballad was written by the singer, William Brown, and by Hugh and Suzanne Johnston, the couple who made the film. It's definitely a product of its experimental time, but it's so earnest and gentle that you can't help but be charmed by it. The footage supplies some context and a few laughs, but you can get the gist from the song alone. Take a listen. Milk. Do you ever wonder where it comes from before the carton? Milk is made in the body of the cow. Most of the milk we drink is made by cows. Hey cow, I see you now. Don't let that loving ode to dairy cows fool you. The Sesame Street premiere had plenty of comedy as well. One standout sequence involves Kermit the Frog, who was a recurring character for the first season, listing examples of words that start with W. He does this while sitting beside a foam cutout of the letter, but as he goes along, the W is gradually munched away into the shape of different letters by the ever-hungry Cookie Monster. Much like Kermit, the furry blue monster was actually recycled from earlier Henson projects, including a commercial for a wheel-shaped snack made by General Foods, in which he was known only as the Wheel Stealer. His love of cookies, and the name that reflected it, all came later, but his ravenous appetite was his defining trait from the start, much to Kermit's chagrin. While I could happily recap the rest of the episode for you, I'll leave some surprises intact. You can find the full episode easily enough online. Before we go, though, I do want to spend some time on the educational impact of Sesame Street. Because, after all, the show's original mission statement was to, quote, promote the intellectual and social growth of preschoolers, particularly disadvantaged ones. So with the show fast approaching its 60th birthday, it's worth considering whether the show has hit its own stated goal. As I mentioned earlier, Joan Cooney started conducting research on Sesame Street before the show even aired, and since her initial paper, more than 1,000 studies have sought to test the show's efficacy. 
The verdict, according to Sesame Workshop, is that, quote, Preschoolers who watch Sesame Street do significantly better on a whole range of cognitive outcomes than those who don't. And most independent research really does bear that out. For example, the National Bureau of Economic Research put out a study in the last decade that focused on the very first generation of kids to grow up with the show in the 1970s. And amazingly, they found that kids who had access to the show performed better in elementary school than those who lived in areas where it wasn't broadcast. The preschoolers who were able to watch Sesame Street were more likely to start school on time and to progress through grade levels at what was considered the appropriate speed. Best of all, children who were raised in economically disadvantaged homes seemed to get the biggest boost from the show. And that accounted for a large percentage of the show's audience, because when Sesame Street debuted, it actually had a wider reach than formal preschool services. In fact, only 19% of four-year-olds in the United States attended preschool in 1970, but that same year, as many as 36% watched Sesame Street. Those findings led the Bureau to conclude that Sesame Street was, quote, the largest and least costly early childhood intervention that's ever been implemented. In other words, Sesame Street has been showing kids the way to sunnier days for half a century. And if we're lucky, it'll be doing the same in half a century to come. Well, look, while he's going off about the letter E, I think we've got to go off too. This is Sesame Street. We have a great time here. You come back and join us anytime you want to. We're going to be here, right? Sally's going to be here. Everybody's going to be here. Come back and join us. See you later. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. Sesame Street is a production of the Children's Television Workshop. NFLShop.com is your one-stop shop for officially licensed NFL gear to rep your favorite team. Check out the latest arrivals of jerseys, t-shirts, and much more. You'll find everything you need for a winning season with the best selection of NFL gear you'll find anywhere. Assemble your fan uniform for cheering on your team everywhere from the stadium to your couch. Shop an unbeatable selection of gear to showcase your team pride and style. To shop now, go to NFLShop.com. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? 
All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.